Hey, it's Jonah Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. On this episode, we look into the rise in maintenance scams as the warm weather returns and what to look out for. We discuss if bedding commercials should be banned to protect our children, and we also check in with an expert in all things about stress and how to find out how to deal with those that stress you out in your relationships. As well, we're going to talk to a travel expert who can give us some tips on travel this summer to make your life just a little easier. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways that we can help make you be at your best. So let me tell you something. It's now the summertime. Yeah, I know. It's the summertime. It's an incredible time to be out having a great time with everybody doing your thing. But here's when all the scammers and spammers come out. Yep, they're knocking on your door saying, hey, man, uh, your roof looks like it has uh, some problems. That Maybe we should uh, get a quote on fixing that for you. Well, let me tell you something. I'm going to go back a whole long time ago. And uh, not something I'm super proud of, but it was what it was. Um, I was one of those guys knocking on doors. Yep, in my teens, I needed to hustle, make some money. And uh, that's what I did. I knocked on doors selling blacktop driveways and basement ceiling and uh, basement ceiling when you seal somebody's basement and uh, renovations and all the kind of stuff that you see people scamming and spamming about today. And the unfortunate thing is we never really showed up once we got the deposit. Yeah, it's, it's embarrassing. But in fact, I can tell you that these kinds of things do exist still today, many, many decades later. And the kinds of folks that are coming to your door making phone calls or getting through to you on email are much more sophisticated than they were back in my day. And it's the time of year where people think that home maintenance things are, um, you know, in the offing. It's the time when you kind of look at your house and think of the things you could fix. And, you know, and then people just suddenly show up. Oh, wow. You know, I was looking, I was thinking about having somebody come to fix my furnace. And here you are, you show up. Of course, I'd love you to come in and see it. That's how some people respond, right? So from roofing scams to painting, uh, to painting, to appliance repairs, all that stuff. But legitimate roofing or renovation companies don't need to knock on doors to find work. If they're busy enough, that should be a red flag. So if they're knocking on your door, that's not typically how people in this business do the work. So that's your first signal, right? Your first signal is someone's at my door selling me home improvement services. Why aren't they calling? Why aren't they texting? Why aren't they emailing me like everyone else? According to Detective David Coffey, he's with the Toronto uh, Metro P- Toronto Police Services Fraud or Financial Crimes Unit. Uh, it can actually literally be anything, he says. It can be brick and mortar, aluminum eaves troughs. Fraud is only limited by the imagination of the fraudsters. And I'm telling you, we used to sell everything. Uh, we used to sell, uh, you know, um, interlock uh, uh, patio stones, all the kinds of things that people you think would be interested in in um, in buying or, you know, or hiring someone to fix if your home is in the need of some sort of repair. So they're very good. Scammers are very good at hustling during the day. When people are usually the people that are home or perhaps, you know, more, uh, more elderly folks or people that aren't working or single moms or moms that are there taking care of their families, homeowner, home uh, makers and so on. So they kind of prey on the individual who may not have everyone in the house to give them some feedback going, honey, close the door. The guy's just a scammer, right? So they may approach your home unsolicited. That's the, the first sign that it's not something cool, not something that you want to be involved in. The other thing is they want large down payments. They want a whole bunch of money up front. That's what was my thing. I would get 50% up front because I got commissioned based on how much cash we got that day. So it didn't matter if it was a $4,000 job. If they gave us a $2,000 check, I got a commission on the $2,000 because like I said in the onset, we never really went back to do the work. So we never got the rest of the money. 
which never made sense to me. It made sense to me later on as I got smarter and realized, you know what, why don't we just do the work and make a profit? Anyway, clearly it never worked out like that, and I, I got out of that line of work pretty quickly uh, once uh, spent a couple of summers doing it. But I'll tell you, it made a whole bunch of money. And the guys that are out there, the people that are out there scamming and spamming you, they make a ton of dough. And you don't think that it's a big deal, but to lift $100,000 in the course of a month is not a big deal. It's 100 homes at $1,000 each. I used to knock on 40 to 50 doors a day. We used to get dropped in a neighborhood. We'd be dropped off at 9, 10 o'clock in the morning and not picked up again until 4, 4.30 in the afternoon. And all you can do is knock on doors and hustle. And door by door, they would say, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. Well, by the time I got to the 25th door, I wasn't going to take no thank you. All they did was make me stronger. So the more we reject these folks, for some reason, it just seems to give them more impetus to keep going. You know, I was talking to somebody today that was talking about being scammed uh, for getting a resume. I mean, it's not a home improvement scam, uh, but this uh, wonderful friend of mine, she, you know, she was trying to get a resume done and they reached out and, you know, all the offerings seemed great. The price was reasonable. The information seemed legit. Bingo, bango, ding, ding, ding. 400 bucks later, out of pocket, no resume, scammed and feeling a little low about being sucked in. But you shouldn't feel like that, folks. Seriously, my friends. It's not how it works. They're very good. These scammers and spammers are very good. I was very good at lifting money from strangers. These folks are very good at lifting money from strangers. So it's not because you're not smart or because you're not savvy to what's going on. It's because they are so skilled at what they do and they know exactly what buttons to push to get your attention, to get you involved in something that is probably clearly not legitimate. So the summertime is not just the only time. It carries on throughout the years too. And you get, you know, all kinds of texts and, and emails that we're getting from folks uh, that you, you see you, all these things that come through your phone these days and they're, you know, you have to make a payment for something or that's your bank calling or it's CRA. That CRA one is wonderful. You know, CRA, if you don't call us back right away, we're sending the police to your house. Hey buddy, they don't do that. Please don't come to your house because the CRA sends them. doesn't work like that. If the CRA wants to get a hold of you, like a legitimate home renovator or a legitimate resume writer, they know how to do it. They're able to do it by contacting you legitimately through a telephone, through text, through email, with a number that you can call back. You know, sometimes I grab the phone just for the fun of it when I feel like I got nothing else to do and I want to play with these people. Problem with that is once you answer the call, yeah, listen to this. Once you answer the call, you're on their hot list. And when you're on their hot list, other folks are going to be calling you throughout the years because they sell these lists. Once Billy does, once Billy and his team are finished scamming you, they pass it on to Roger and his team. They sell it, of course. And then Roger scams and spams whatever he can. He sells it down to Donnie and sells it down to Katie. And by the end of the year, you're on the fifth or sixth set of scammers and spammers that have your phone number, email address, and perhaps home address as well. So you got to be really attentive. You got to be really on top of it. Make sure you ask all the right questions. Do you have any referrals? Is there a number that I can call your office and verify who you are? Most legitimate door knockers, and there are people out there that legitimately market door to door. Most legitimate door knockers wear a badge. They wear a legitimate badge on the outside that you can read. It says who they are. They usually have some kind of license number, business license number of some sort, and they're able to, you know, identify themselves in some legitimate way to give you the comfort to know you're talking to a, a real company. Then you close the door and say, let me call your boss and I'll, I'll get right back to you here. Of course, you call the number and they say, yes, in fact, he works for us. So you got a better opportunity of it being a legitimate opportunity, not so much a scam. And by the way, once the money's gone, it's gone. There's no claiming it back. Police don't really come after them. It's not that they're, eventually they're going to get caught. But generally, by the time they catch them, 
your money's gone and everyone else's money's gone and there's no money left to any kind of restitution and very little happens to these folks because most of them are pretty um, pretty transient. You know, they don't they kind of move from city to city and town to town. So I think what we're talking about here is, you know, being very careful. Make sure you ask all the right questions. And most professional organizations like roofers and tiling people and renovators and rooftop and uh, blacktop driveway folks and so on, most of them are, are somewhat certified and regulated. So you're looking for regulated people that are properly regulated and certified so that you know that they have some background, some legitimate organization overlooking the work that they do. So like I said, I'm not really proud of what I did, but I can tell you that it it is very much a real thing these days. People scamming and spamming because they can't make a legitimate living for some reason. Not sure why. I certainly found my way. So be attentive. Pay attention. Be alert. Be an advocate for yourself. Make sure you ask all the right questions. You have no right, no reason, no right to let anybody in your door. They're not welcome to come into your door unless you give them permission. And frankly, they shouldn't even be on your stoop, on your door, on on your porch, unless given permission to to come forward to the house. So pay attention. If it sounds too good, it's probably too good. If it sounds too easy, it's probably too easy. Nothing really good comes without a little bit of effort, perhaps a little bit of work and maybe a few aches and pains. So we'll talk about this again some other time if we find that this is a continuing problem. Love to hear from you to see what you think. Please give us a text and we'll uh, chat about it some other time. So carry on with uh, your summer. Have a good time. Don't be so fearful. Just be attentive. Pay attention. And we'll, uh, we'll make sure that uh, your money stays in your pocket where it belongs. Should Ontario ban advertising for online betting to protect young people? Yeah. Should they be to protect all people? Yeah. Does it seem a little over the top when I'm watching a hockey game and all of a sudden I get advertised to every two or three minutes when the opportunity arises that I should sign up for betting this or bet for that or this forum or that forum for betting? And then all of a sudden some famous people, Jamie Foxx, Gretzky the Great One, you know, there's all kinds of actors and famous people that I really like out there hacking and hawking, betting online. And is it a good thing? Well, you know, it's like anything else. Someone can smoke a joint and have a great weekend. But then someone else with marijuana, not such a great weekend. It all depends on who you are and what you're all about. And as Ontario's gambling regulators ponder the opportunity to ban on celebrity like Leaf star Austin Matthews and his internet gaming ads or Canadian Mental Health Association urging a, a much, urging a much bolder move, frankly, on banning all advertising of online betting to protect teens and young people. The ads which are prominent and frequent in the NHL playoff uh, television series broadcasting, uh, enticing them to gamble, according to the Canadian Mental Health uh, Association. It says it's recommending to the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario that they put a ban on many of these ads. You know, so you're a 17-year-old kid, 16-year-old kid watching the hockey game, and all of a sudden it's enticing you to make tons of money by betting online. They always show, the ads always show people that are successful in the online betting world. They never show the person who's sitting and crying because he just spent all of his money gambling on a team that didn't win. They never show that in the advertising. They never talk about the alarming numbers of people that are gambling. In Ontario, we're seeing an alarming increase among students in grades 7 to 12 betting money on online gambling. The association's submission continues, that is the CMHC, citing a 2021 Center for Addiction and Mental Health study on Ontario student drug use and health, which found 15% reported gambling with money online. So the question is, where are they getting the money? Well, you know, um, a lot of it's crypto money. A lot of it's money that they make uh, that you, the folks, their parents, don't seem to see. 
But the experts like myself worry about the influence of Ontario sports betting on young people and on people in general. I treat a lot of people in my practice that have gaming and gambling issues. And I treat a lot of people who have come close to losing their houses, for sure losing their families, certainly you know, calling, ca- causing an alienation between themselves and their wives, their selves, their husbands, their children. You know, people have lost their jobs because they're gambling online. I was working with a fellow who was making about $230,000 a year as an executive and ended up broke because he gambled and he spent on a weekend over $400,000 upside down. They had no way to figure out how to pay it back. So a gambling, so a, the Gaming Commission proposed a ban on high-profile influencers. So what they're suggesting is that high-profile people like we're talking about, like the Gretzkys of the world, do not participate in advertising for these online betting groups or these companies and do not draw young people like Austin Matthews, Austin Matthews would for sure, excuse me, because you look at him, you go like, he's a famous hockey player. If it's safe for him to do, it's safe for me to do, right? doesn't work like that. So the Canadian Gaming Association representing companies including FanDuel, DraftKings, Bet99, BetMGM uh, Bet uh, maintains it does a good job at balancing the promotion of online gaming with being responsible. Garbage. Not true at all. They don't do any better a job than the LCBO does in helping people stop drinking making sure that the people that come day in and day out to pick up a 26er of rye or 26er of vodka or whatever box of beer, day after day after day in the middle of the morning, maybe they should say something to them. Hey, Billy, you know, maybe you want some money for a coffee instead or go go get a breakfast and we'll come come back tomorrow. It's not the job of the LCBO, nor is it the job of the Gaming Commission to help people stop doing what they're doing if it's not healthy for them. So gaming-related, gambling-related harms such as financial loss, mental health issues, substance use, right, which is also part of it, suicide ideation, you lose enough money, you feel like you want to kill yourself, right? It's legitimate. They can have devastating, long-lasting impacts on individuals and their families, as we talked about. Risks and particularly high, are particularly high in low-income families, according to the association, which is also calling on the commission to require internet gaming sites to set limits on how much money can be wagered and how much time can be spent online. At a minimum, internet gaming advertising should be limited to times of day when the likelihood of exposure to young people, to children in particular, is minimal, according to the CMHC. The year, the first year, excuse me, of online regulated gambling in Ontario saw the industry take $1.4 billion in revenue on wagers of $35.6 billion, according to Gaming Ontario. So that's an awful lot of money to be taking out of other people's pockets, yours, mine, your neighbor's. Awful lot of dollars that we're talking about. And we're not talking about nickels and dimes. We're talking about $50 here, $100 there, right? And it's a big deal if you don't pay attention to it because it's, you know, I know a lot of folks that buy lottery tickets. I also know folks that buy hundreds of lottery tickets. I mean, I buy a lottery ticket here and there, one here, one there, especially if I'm out of town in a small town and I figure I'm going to get the winning ticket because I'm in somewhere, no, I'm in Nowhereville, Ontario, and I'm the only one buying the winning ticket that day. Maybe that's how karma is supposed to work. But the big deal is the people that are advertising for these betting sites, the Gretzky's of the world and so on, these are the folks that entice those that find them as heroes to participate in the things that they're, that they're proposing or promoting. So what we need to do is we need to be very attentive. We need to be very careful that what we're, you know, that what we're exposed to isn't causing us to make bad choices. You know, and gambling is one of those things. You know, if you do it for fun, if it's a fun thing to do and it's an entertainment, you know, it's recreation, like every once in a while, if I find myself in a casino, maybe I'll spend $50 on on playing the slot machines, but that's it. 
That would be the cost of going to a movie and out for dinner for me. So it's not a big deal, right? I spend more on the movie than the food, by the way. So looking at it realistically, gaming for those that know how to use it, you know, properly, know how to use it in a safe way, it's not a bad thing. But the way that we're promoting it to people, certainly in Ontario, certainly it looks like it's it's just a nonstop, a nonstop barrage of join this, join that, bet here, bet there. And watching TV in the evenings, if you're if you're watching TV or listening to the radio, which is what you should all be doing, certainly when I'm on, there's all kinds of advertising for gaming sites and betting opportunities. And it hits you at a time maybe when it's late in the afternoon and you haven't had a great day at work and you're kind of just your job may suck a little bit and you're just, you know, making the kind of money that you'd like to. You know, maybe I can get ahead of it. You know, maybe if I take this hundred, I can turn it into a thousand. Okay. Not life changing. But when you say, maybe I'll take 25,000 and trying to turn it into a hundred thousand could definitely be life changing, especially if you're betting against your lines of credit, which seems to be the way that a lot of people that have homes and such and businesses, they seem to get trapped in the borrowing part of the gambling cycle. So when you have to borrow the money to gamble or to game, by the way, it's not just gambling on site for sporting events. There's all kinds of other online betting opportunities and wagering opportunities embedded in online gaming, not just gambling. Things to buy, things to wager, things to do, right? So money through the internet, money through social media, money through electronic means and betting online and so on seems to evaporate very quickly. You don't actually hand the dollars to anybody. You know, there was a, there was a study done years ago. I just don't have access to it right now. That talked about the difference between betting online, or, or excuse me, betting yeah, betting online, you know, over over uh, uh, an electronic uh, transfer versus uh, a debit card, credit card versus cash. People were much more careful, much more cautious when they had to take a twenty dollar bill out of their pocket, hand it to the person for whatever it was that they were doing, versus swiping a credit card, tapping your phone, or just swapping it from an account online. Invisible money isn't invisible when you have to pay for it later. It's coming from somewhere. No one's just giving it to you for free. So the opportunity to change your life through a gaming, gambling, or betting opportunity, probably not a great way to plan your life. For a little bit of fun, sure. So why are we spending so much money? Why are the advertisers spending so much money enticing us to come and do things that probably aren't good for us? Because they're making billions of dollars doing it. They wouldn't be spending the money they wouldn't be paying for the, 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 um, the kinds of folks, the kinds of uh, uh, influencers that they have. They wouldn't be paying these people the millions of dollars I'm sure that they have to buy. I mean, what would it cost Gretzky to get Gretzky on to do an ad for 30 seconds or a minute? I got to think it's a fortune. I mean, certainly a fortune for me. Got to be seven figures or more. Got to be over a million dollars. Number one, does he really need the money? I don't know. But maybe he should stick to hockey and you should stick to doing what you do and leave the gaming for, uh, for someone else. Are there ways that people stress you out? You find that there's people that just constantly stress you out, whether it's at work, at the mall, or maybe a family member or somebody, you know, neighbor next door. Well, you know, there are ways to deal with stressful people from someone who's unreasonable, like your boss, to difficult in-laws, right? It can be helpful to learn or to learn how you can lean into something called flight mode, which is a temporarily, uh, temporarily remove yourself from stressful situations or conversations if you feel that the stressful emotions are taking over. You can tell when someone's stressing you out because you get that funky feeling down the back of your neck, so to speak, right? And our world's filled with stressful people. 
more accurately, people who bring you stress, they cause stress, unreasonable boss, in-laws, like we said, relationships that are just not good, right? And if you find that you're in a stressful relationship, you really want to look at how to get out. You really want to look at ways to manage it, whether you're stepping away from that relationship for 20 minutes or you're finding yourself a way to sandwich meetings with tricky people between activities that you like. There are ways to do this. And we have an expert with us tonight who's going to help us understand the best way to deal with stressful people. Her name is Dr. Katerina Rennick, and she is a psychologist at the Vancouver CBT Center, which is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Center, and a postdoctoral fellow at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Riddick, thank you so much for joining us this evening. How are you doing? Great, and thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. How do you deal with stressful people in your life? Oh, well, it's a great question. I mean, as you say, we've all got people in our lives that, uh, you know, for better or for worse, <laughs> they're there and you got to deal with them. Um, I think something that I really lean into heavily is assertiveness skills, right? So um, thinking through, you know, is this a situation where I'm going to have to really stand up for myself? Um, is, is there a, a clear message that I want to share? And then doing that in a way that's respectful and considerate of the other person. Yeah, I think that's the key part, right? Being respectful and considerate. You don't want to turn it into into like a real nightmare when uh, you try to, you know, sort of lean out. So, are there specific reasons why certain people can almost instantly stress you out? Like, are, I don't know about you in particular, but generally speaking, from a, a more global perspective, more general perspective, what happens when someone stresses us out? How does that affect us psychologically? Yeah, I think a, a key thing uh, for a lot of people uh, that really can increase their stress levels in an interpersonal interaction is when, you know, you, you feel like you don't have a lot of control, right? So um, some of the examples you gave, like, you know, maybe it's a tricky in-law or a boss that's not being reasonable. You know, these are situations where we don't feel like we're maybe on an even playing field. Maybe there's a bit of a social hierarchy in place or, um, you know, it's someone that, we, you know, we can't just step out of the room necessarily, someone that we really have to engage in, maybe someone that has some power in our lives. Um, so that's where I think it's really important to have some skills in our toolkit that we can use so that we can engage with these people, have an effective conversation, um, and actually be able to reduce our stress rather than actually, you know, maybe engaging in an argument and actually increasing our stress levels and putting ourselves more into like a fight or flight mode. Yeah. So tell me, how does stress impact most people, though? Generally speaking, how does stress manifest itself for people um, based on your experience and your research? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we all experience stress. Um, it's something that's going to come up no matter what. I think where it becomes a problem is when our stress levels are actually exceeding our coping capabilities or our coping capacities. And um, that's where people, as I say, they can get into this fight or flight mode really frequently. And our bodies aren't really built for that. So, um, you know, getting into that fight or flight mode really frequently actually creates some wear and tear on the body over time. So we're, you know, our body's releasing cortisol. So that's a stress hormone. It's releasing pro-inflammatory cytokines. So those are sort of these pro-inflammatory markers. And over time, that can actually affect our physical health, right? So puts people at greater risk for cardiovascular diseases, um, diabetes, uh, cancer, you know, all sorts of things that we, we really would, would rather avoid. So it's important to have these skills to, to try to manage our stress, whether that's 
reducing how much stress we're exposed to or increasing our, our capabilities for, for coping with it when it does come up. Is there a difference, Doctor? Um, I'm by the way, I'm just talking to Dr. Katerina uh, Rinnick. She's a psychologist at uh, the Vancouver CBT Center and also with the University of British Columbia as a postdoctoral fellow. Um, doctor, is, is there is there a difference between stress that we feel in our lives as it relates to, let's say, our own activities, our own agendas, our own task lists versus the stress that we have that we receive from others? In other words, impacted by those around us. So the self-driven stress versus stress put on us mm -hmm. by others. Is there a difference? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting question. Um, one of the areas that I study is actually um, called stress generation. And that is this phenomenon through which we actually generate stresses in our lives. And, um, you know, we all do it, some of us to a greater extent than others. Um, and we know that people who are really what we think of as high stress generators are actually at greater risk of developing mental health issues. And that's all sorts of issues like depression, anxiety, substance use problems. Um, but the interesting thing is um, one of the most common types of stressors that we generate are what we think of as interpersonal stressors. So arguments, conflict, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um when we when we kind of you know we work in the lab and we interview people and we go to classify the different types of stressors they're telling us about we we tend to find that interpersonal ones are some of the most common and they're not only the ones that people are often you know playing a role in generating but they can sometimes be initiated by other people and what becomes really important is what we do with that right so we're always going to have these sort of difficult to deal with people um, come up uh, through work or in our home lives um, and I think the trick is there is, is to be able to expect that and manage that and not actually feed into the stress and increase it and, you know, actually um, escalate the, those conflicts or arguments when they do come up. Is there such a thing as a healthy amount of stress? Yes, I would say so. So, um, you know, I, I think we're all going to experience stress in our lives, especially when it's, we're working towards a goal that's really important to us. So sometimes feeling a bit stressed is actually sort of a, a signal to ourselves. This is important to me. This matters. So let's say it's um, if you're working towards a goal at work, maybe you've got a deadline, maybe you're giving a big presentation. You know, these are situations that many of us would find stressful, but they can be sort of this, you know, kind of good type of stress, you know, we're working towards a, a goal, we're, we're moving forward, we're getting outside of our comfort zone. Um, and when it becomes a, a less good type of stress, sometimes that's um, in terms of sort of the frequency or the volume, right? So if we've got so many deadlines, so many things going on work, so many um, responsibilities and roles we have at home that we're just not able to do it all, that's when it kind of it's almost like a, a cup of water, right? You've only got so much space in there, and at a certain point, it can start to over overflow. You know, so you know you have those people in your life that stress you out. I have them as well. You know, we all have those sort of folks that we try to avoid from time to time because every time we do, they say things or act in ways that just, you know, bug us in some way, shape, or form. So listen up here. We're talking with Dr. Katerina Rennick. She is a psychologist at the Vancouver Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Center and a postdoctoral post 
fellow at the University of British Columbia, Dr. Rinnick. Thanks so much for being a part of this and hanging out with me tonight. Um, CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, uh, something I use tons in my practice. I believe in it. I live my life by it. Uh, explain it to the audience, to the listeners, a little bit about CBT and how that would help in the situation where you're dealing with a stressful person. Oh, absolutely. So uh, in cognitive behavioral therapy, one of the main things we focus on is um, helping people understand the link between their thoughts, their emotions, and their behavior, and sort of how we can influence how we feel, so our emotions, by influencing how we think and how we behave. Um, so uh, an example could be, you know, your boss calls you into your office. And if you have a really negative interpretation of that situation, so let's say you think, oh, they're, they're really upset with my performance, that might lead to feelings like I feel anxious, I feel sad, I feel upset. And that can feed into some behaviors. So maybe you kind of keep your head down in the meaning, you don't say a whole lot, you're, you're kind of passive. And then that kind of starts the cycle again. So you might have thoughts about that, like, oh, gee, you know, I'm such a lousy worker. And so, um, yeah, learning, learning how that cycle works and then that can really help us to intervene at those points that are easiest to. So again, like I said, through our behaviors, we might try to shift some of those. And then we also might try to shift the way we're thinking about different situations. So that's a great explanation. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And I'm sure our audience does as well. Uh, but let me ask you something here. So cognitive yeah. behavioral therapy, my understanding is, you know, how to find sunshine in a dark cloud, right? So it, how do you find the positive piece in the relationship with someone who just bugs you, right? Causes you stress mm -hmm. some of the time. Do you just bite your tongue and just suck it up, so to speak? Or is there a positive way to express yourself so that you're able to share at the same time, maybe not burn a bridge? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think sometimes there there is a time and place to, to decide, you know what, I'm going to pull back. This situation might not be worth getting into an argument um, and sort of knowing when to pick your battles, right? When is this actually mm -hmm. important to me? When is it a goal? Uh, when is it important for my values? Versus when is this sort of, you know, not a very important thing for me to engage in? So um, so there, there is a time to set a boundary and to, you know, maybe take a step away and pull back. And, but then, of course, there are times where it's really important to engage with the other person, uh, to assert, you know, the message that you want to share, what you need to communicate. And um, yeah, that's where we really get into the assertiveness skills. So um, ways to engage in a difficult conversation, maybe with a, a difficult or challenging to deal with person in a way where we're really aiming not to escalate the stress and we're aiming to get our, our message across. So coming in with a, a clear goal, what is it I want to accomplish here? What is, I, what is it that I want the other person to know? not trying to accomplish too many goals at once, right? So kind of coming in with, okay, this is my one goal. Um, and trying to be really direct with the person, right? So it's clearly stating your message. Um, we, we like to talk about this idea of using I language. So mm -hmm. um, rather than saying, you know, you did this, you said that. Um, so, you know, you're never there for me, something like that. Maybe you say something else. So I felt hurt when... I'll give an example, uh, when you didn't call me to check in after I had my surgery, you know, and, and so mm -hmm. kind of expressing your feelings um, rather than putting the other person sort of on the defense can really help as well. 
Yeah, the uh, reframing your conversation to take the the you out of the equation, I find it works really well, mm-hmm. especially parents with children, you know, teenagers. As soon as you say you, 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 they close down, right? Um, oh, so, yeah, you know, yeah, we're exactly on the same page. Um, at what point, you know, my, well, sometimes I say something to my wife and it's not maybe the best thing I would say. And she'd just look at me and she'd say something like, you know, if it's your intention to hurt my feelings, you did a really good job. Is it that kind of forwardness that you're talking about, that kind of upfront talk, uh, which is saying something that definitely caught my attention, but it was not done in a nasty way? Is that kind of what you're talking about here? Yeah, I think the key is really trying to um, keep a calm tone, being respectful of the other person, while still kind of standing your ground and making sure that they understand your your perspective and that, that you're... Um, you know, you're sharing that and, and making sure, you know, sometimes you might need to rephrase it if the person isn't quite getting it. And sort of mm-hmm. sometimes you have to come back to it. We call that the broken record technique where you sort of restate, rephrase, come back to it, um, make sure that the other person's heard, heard your message. So what do you do in the difficult situation, doctor, when like it's a family member or in a real tough situation, like an in-law, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, you know, where, where, you know, you want to say what you want to say, you want to get yourself heard, but you got to, you got to live with these people. How do you do that yeah. without sort of, you know, making a big mess and having to walk in it? Yeah, for sure. I think that sometimes, especially in those kinds of situations, uh, if it, if a discussion, uh, is getting a bit heated, that's where sometimes it can be good to take a break from the conversation. You know, if you're in a situation where you're like, gee, I don't want to say something I might regret saying later, or, you know, I'm feeling really angry or emotional and I'm not, I'm not being as clear as I want to be. And I think those are really good opportunities to sort of say, you know what, this is important. I want to come back to this and then politely excuse yourself from the situation Maybe take a little break if you're like, wow, I am I am in fight or flight mode. This is not a good mode to be in with this person. And, um, you know, do what you need to do to, to regulate. Maybe, you know, go for a walk, have a shower, do those kinds of things for yourself. And then later on, whether it's the same day or maybe you come back to it a different day, you return to the conversation again with that clear goal. This is what I want to communicate. Um, this is what I would like the other person to understand. But I think coming in with the readiness to hear their perspective and to ask them questions and to understand uh, where they're coming from. Maybe it's a situation where you both need to come together and compromise. It's difficult to understand uh, someone who is um, in a depressive state of mind, you know, someone will say, you know, I feel really depressed. Uh, for some people, it's just a, you know, it's a, a feeling that passes. Um, for most, it's it's not something that's debilitating. But for many, many people, depression is something that keeps you from, keeps them from being able to go to work, get out of bed, have long, you know, long lasting relationships, uh, get comfortable, you know, be at their best, so to speak. Difficult for people to really uh, get there when they're feeling down, right? And some people look at it and they try to understand the difference between being depressed 
and just kind of having the blues, right? Feeling a little blue. Well, since it's getting, uh, we're towards the end here of Mental Health Month. Uh, May is Mental Health Month, and uh, we're almost done with the month of May. So towards the end of Mental Health Month, I wanted to start a process here where we can start understanding what depression looks like. And uh, for the next two or three weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about uh, uh, depression and ways to overcome it and ways to deal with it, ways to understand it. Uh, but um, it's important to understand, I think, first of all, the difference between feeling blue and feeling, you know, feeling like you have a, a level of depression. So, um, you know, there are professionals that can diagnose you, but here's some self self test um, uh, tips that you might be able to come up with yourself. So symptoms. So if you're feeling blue, symptoms will include the feelings of sadness, lack of sleep, maybe lack of appetite. And depression has these symptoms in many more, including prolonged insomnia, significant weight loss or gain, extreme fatigue, disinterest in regular activities, the things that you normally would enjoy. You know, the difference between depression and feeling a little blue or a little off is the level of, or the depth of, excuse me, the depth of the feelings, how they feel. So if you can't get out of bed, you don't want to get out of bed, you don't feel like you want to eat, you know, you're not going to the gym, you're not going to your regular stuff that you would normally go to, uh, maybe not attending work, calling in sick uh, more often than not. Uh, I'd be looking at that as more of a depressive state of mind than simply just, a, a, you know, a sense of feeling blue or a little off, right? And the intensity of the depression, right? So depression is much more intense than just a feeling of feeling blue. So if you're feeling a little down, you might be sad, but they're still a, you're still able to perform your daily functions like going to work and school, like we said a little earlier, caring for your family. Well, those with depression, as we said, may find it very difficult to function and having difficult time getting, you know, just getting through their normal chores. And for some people, this depression can come and go. You know, other people, it's it, it can be something that stays uh, with them for weeks, months, sometimes years. Um, you can, in some cases, get some relief from medication, if, if, it's a, if it's a chemically driven uh, situation, and there's certain times when medication might be helpful to kind of help you over the over the edge, perhaps not a long-term solution, unless you're diagnosed with a, a level of depression that can be easily modified or, 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 uh, or um, um, I guess, uh, uh, treated, if you will, with medication. But for the most part, depression, like most mental health issues and, and challenges, are, can be treated with good therapy, good talk therapy. Uh, being able to have conversations with somebody and uh, somebody who's obviously skilled and trained in the area of helping you get through the things that are difficult for you. So the intensity of the the, the intensity of the feelings, the intensity of how difficult it is to get out of bed, how difficult it is to get your normal chores done, the difficulty, the intensity of the difficulty is what will help you determine whether you're depressed or just feeling a little blue. And if you're depressed, the first place I would start would be with your family doctor right? Maybe learn a little bit, talk to your family doctor. They may have some suggestions, especially if they know you well. You know, depression may come as a result of, of a loss. God forbid there's someone in your life that has passed. I mean, there's a part of the grieving and, and, and uh, loss process. Uh, there is a le level of depressive thoughts and depressive feelings. Uh, hopefully they're able to pass once you get on the other side. Um, and you should also be looking at the length of the symptoms. So with depression, the individual experience person just experienced depression uh, perhaps for a longer period of time than if they're just feeling a little blue. People who aren't just who are just feeling a little blue may feel sad and down for a few days, a few hours, uh, but able to bounce back, right? 
the length of the symptoms, the length of how uh, how long it lasts, may in fact determine help you determine uh, what you're dealing with, whether it's depression or just feeling blue, and and the cause. You know, wh- what are you feeling down? Is there something you can relate to? Some event in your life that you can touch on or point to and say, I'm down because of this, you know, just broke up with my, my, my significant other. I'm feeling pretty down about that. God forbid, lost my job, feeling pretty down about that. My dog got sick. My cat died. All of these things are horrible situations in your life for sure. And can often cause us to feel down or depressed or off. Right? So we want to look at the cause as we're looking at ourselves and trying to understand what depression means for you, or if you if you have such a thing going on. And if not, um, perhaps looking at, at uh, your situation. And if you're not getting any relief from things like sleeping better, eating better, exercise, talking to friends, those kinds of things, then you probably need to get some support, right? So because depression will drain your energy and it takes your hope away and your drive, makes it difficult to take steps that, you know, that will help you even feel better. Sometimes people can't get out of the depression because they're so, you know, they're so depressed that they can't function well enough to get the help that they need. So just thinking about the things you should do to try to feel better, like exercising or spending time with friends can seem exhausting or sometimes impossible to put into action if you're someone that's in a depressive state of mind. So taking the first step is always the hardest, but going for a walk, getting up and getting out, trying to trying to listen to some music, maybe tap your feet, trying to get to that positive place is something you can do. You can boost that with, you know, your favorite meal, with talking to a friend or someone that makes you feel good about yourself, by right? You know, watching something on TV, listening to some music, uh, reading something that makes you smile, right? But the first step is the hardest. You've got to get up and get going. So you got to cope with depression. That's tip number one. Reach out and stay connected. How do you do that? So getting support plays an essential role in recovery. And on your own, it's very difficult to maintain a healthy perspective. So getting the help from others. At the same time, the very nature of depression makes it difficult, as we said, to get the kind of help that you need. So how do you reach out for that kind of support? How do you reach out for that kind of help? Well, there's a lot to do here. So we'll talk about a little bit tonight, and next week we'll do some more, and the following week until we get through a whole process here. But essentially, at the end of the day, you want to look for support from people who will make you feel safe and make you feel cared for. You have to make FaceTime a priority. Phone calls, social media, texting are great ways, but it's very important to try to get in, in the face of someone, get them close to you, like in real time if you can. And trying to keep up with your social activities is also very important, even when you don't feel like it. And you got to find ways to support others. If, if there's someone that you know needs support and, and uh, you know, you're there, and you, you can, that'll help you boost your mood. By helping others with their stuff is a way that helps you boost your mood. And by the way, if you have a pet or you can get a pet, you're feeling like you get depressed more often than not, pets are great. A dog, a cat, something simple that you can take care of, forces you to get out of bed, forces you to have to feed the animal, care for the animal, wash the animal. If, if, if it's a dog or something that you walk, although I did see somebody walking a rabbit the other day, if you can believe that. Um, yeah. So if you got something that can take your, your mind off of yourself, you take your mind off of your depression, so to speak, right? These are things that make it easier for you to cope and easier for you to get through those difficult times that are you know sometimes very debilitating. And there's so many things we can do, right? Learning how to, you know, joining a support group for depression, talking to other people that are feeling like you feel uh, is also extremely helpful. 
But over the next two, three weeks, we've got a lot of stuff we can do to talk to you about how you can manage depression, how you can manage those blue moods that just don't seem to go away. I think it's very important and uh, something we can share uh, over the next few weeks. So join us as we continue to talk about this kind of stuff. Summertime's coming. I know my wife and I have plans. We're going to be traveling. We got this whole thing planned to travel across Canada from uh, Ontario to BC. We got the part of it. We're driving part of it. We're flying part of it. Um, Very, very excited. But I got to tell you, um, as you know, and we've talked about this before, you know, I have anxiety issues. I've got attention deficit issues. I've got obsessive compulsive disorder issues. And travel for me is one of those things that if I set it up properly, and oh, oh, by the way, I travel with a scooter, meaning I have a mobility scooter because I can't walk um, long enough to get through an airport. Uh, my legs and my back don't carry me like that. So I'm, I'm also on a scooter. So I'm now a guy with all that mental health stuff. Can you imagine all the baggage I'm carrying before I even carry a suitcase? But seriously, so it, for me, it's a big deal, right? Just getting ready to travel, just you know, packing. I, I know it sounds really maybe silly to you, but not to me, um, you know, packing in my house, uh, I pack for maybe, you know, two or three days before going on a trip. And most of what I do now is travel in a carry on. We'll get to that in the next uh, segment too. We're going to talk about carry on luggage versus not, but, um, you know, part of the whole travel thing for me is the ease of getting in and getting out. So having travel, you know, we used to, what my wife and I used to pack, you know, extra luggage and make sure we had all these extra things that we needed and wanted. Uh, We thought we did, we thought we needed, certainly wanted. Um, And we'd wait for luggage at the end when we, you know, when you get to the luggage uh, uh, carousel and you're waiting and you're waiting and it's turning and you're waiting. You know, I remember one time, even before the pandemic, I, I waited almost three and a half hours for my luggage I was with a bunch of people. We flew into the U.S. somewhere. don't remember exactly where. I think it was New York with a bunch of people. And and I was the last one, you know, leaving the airport because I had to sit around and wait for my luggage. And I was stressing, trying to figure out if they lost it. They didn't know where it was, whether it was on the plane, not on the plane. Anyway, carry-on luggage makes that much, much easier. But the whole concept of travel, the whole situation, the lineups, getting through the, you know, the, even the traffic, just getting to the airports these days. Uh, if you're flying, if you're an air traveler, um, it's not set up to make our lives really, really easy. Canadian airports and airlines, though, they're bracing for a hot summer travel season ahead as they attempt to bounce back from the chaos of the long lines and delays that were seen across the country over the last year and last year or two. And travelers might actually have a smoother ride this time around as the travel sector rolls out some series, a series of measures uh, from hiring more staff to technological advancements. So um, now with COVID-19 restrictions, remember when the re- we had these COVID-19 restrictions? I'm sure you all do if you were traveling. Um, if you do, I'd like to hear from you, by the way, 877-399-9898. The next two segments, we're going to be talking about seg- uh, uh, travel. So we'd love to hear from you either by text or by phone. Share with me some of your travel experiences if you can, if you feel comfortable to do that. We'd love to hear from you and uh, see where you're at as it relates to uh, traveling this summer. But, you know, there's a lot of changes taking place. Uh, You know, during the COVID uh, experience, everybody had to check in and testing and swabbing at the airport, giving extra documents and so on. It became very, very difficult. 
uh, to just, you know, make a simple uh, travel experience um, simple. It really wasn't uh, a basic travel experience wasn't as simple uh, as it used to be. And certainly now it's starting to get a little bit better. So what can you expect at the airports today, these days? Well, after a challenging summer and winter, the Toronto Pearson Airport, where I live in Toronto, Pearson International Airports boosted their staff and implemented new technology to improve the passenger experience, they say. Staffing has increased significantly at the airport with more than 10,000 new workers since last summer, bringing the total to 50,000. And uh, that's a lot of people uh, employed to try to make your experience better. Doesn't mean that they do a great job just because there's lots of them. Doesn't mean they do a great job. So hopefully there's some extra training involved there uh, as it relates to how to be nice to people that are traveling in chaotic periods of time. Because for the most part, most of the folks at the airport are not very nice, I guess, because they're getting, you know, they're getting uh, uh, yelled at and screamed at, uh, screamed at by, by not nice travelers. Uh, but for the most part, you know, it's their job. You would hope that they have the skills necessary to push back at that and make your experience better. Uh, the baggage system at the airport has been upgraded, featuring uh, artificial intelligence. It detects possible breakdowns and overloading before it occurs. So there's some new technology that they're putting in place. Uh, Montreal and Montreal's airport expecting the summer traffic to uh, be pretty significant. So they've revised a lot of their flight schedules. That's another thing. So it's a question of, uh, I think, I mean, listen, man, that's not my area of expertise. I don't want to start to wax on here about logistics and the right way and the wrong way to, to travel and what I would do if I was in charge. But, you know, it, it would seem logical. It would seem logical that if we knew what the flow of traffic was going to be based on the number of tickets sold and the number of people signed up for those flights, which they have access to, that you could staff up or down accordingly. And it becomes a problem when you're trying to clear a, a, um, a let's say, a security lineup. And, you know, there's zillions of people. It's not a real number, but there's lots of people lined up. And, and, and clearly a shortage of staff on the other side to probably manage them. At the Vancouver International Airport, officials are already anticipating approximately 81,000 passengers a day over the next uh, number of summer months. That's roughly on par with pre-pandemic numbers. Uh, August is expected in BC to be the busiest of the summer. We're traveling in July, thankfully, so we won't hit in the peak periods. Uh, we're also review They're also reviewing each area of our operations, according to the pe people at the Vancouver International Airport. Uh, from access to the airport, passenger drop-off areas, check-in, baggage, passenger processing, gates, uh, airfield movements, all of it. They're looking at all of it, right? So how are the airlines preparing? So Canadian airlines are also hoping to avoid a repeat of the horror shows of last summer. Air Canada, the country's flight, you know, national carrier, taking prudent approach, they say, to scheduling by flying less over the summer months as compared to 2019. So they're scheduling less flights over the summer months. The airline told Global News that it's, it, it has more people on staff than before the pandemic of 2019. We've actually added resources and take other measures as well, they say, adjusting our schedules to create more connection time for customers and to flatten our peak flying periods during the day. So they're starting to pay attention to it, right? You know, WestJet just did a pretty good job avoiding a, a pretty nasty strike. That would have been really ugly for everyone involved. Uh, but you know, it's, it, it, you never see the, the problem is like, even people like Edmonton based flare airlines, they saw 
four of its planes temporarily seized during a dispute last March. Like there's all kinds of things that you can't predict, you can't allow for, I guess, from what I'm reading. But certainly, you know, you can predict that the number of people flying, you can predict, you know, the kind of, uh, of, of pressure that's going to be on the gates and so on. So I think they're, they're doing a better job. They're starting to pay attention. They're paying attention such that we're hopefully going to have a much easier summer to travel. And, you know, when we come back for break, we'll take a break here, uh, just a minute here or so. We're going to take a break. And when we come back from break, I want to talk about carry-on luggage because that's my new thing. If you can't fit it into a carry-on, you shouldn't bring it. But let me explain how I do it because it's it's not so simple, right? It's not so simple. You've got to be prepared to wear the same thing a few times. You've got to be prepared to wash some skivvies and socks in the sink and such, right? So I'm not sure you're up for that. We got Doug. He's uh, in, from Surrey, B.C. He's on the line, been kind enough to wait. Doug, good evening and or, or good morning. Welcome for you. Good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi. Um, I heard you talking about your long wait for baggage in uh, in the airport. There was three hours plus. I know back when I worked at the busiest airport in Canada, I was in baggage, and uh, sometimes we'd get uh, inbound. And the rule of thumb was uh, twenty minutes from wheel stop, the baggage better be on the carousel, or somebody out in the ramp would be answering a lot of questions fast. But uh, unless the weather or, or a storm came through and everybody was on hold, but uh, yeah, the, uh, the the stress for people like me that worked at the airline was uh, sitting in departure lounge and you have connections downline and you wonder if you're getting on if you're flying standby. That was always a joy, and sometimes it did come that you were sitting there and your baggage went and you had to catch it and uh, carry on. Well, that was basically my rule of thumb was. I had this old beaten up leather suit bag and a bag full of cameras and lenses. And if it couldn't be carried or hung up, it didn't go. In the case of skis, well, you went in January when everybody was at home paying for Christmas and New Year's. And uh, you didn't didn't, uh, even go near anything on 1st of July weekend or when the snowbirds were going to Florida because you knew that the Florida flights would be backed up solid oversold, whatever you want to call it. We weren't getting on. So you picked your spots. You checked the flight the night before and figured, okay, fine. You'd phone up to res and tell them what was going on, and uh, they'd make sure you were on the flight, basically. And if you dressed up nice, you got first class. And if you didn't try and empty the bar, the, uh, the reputation got around. The guy's not a drinker. And there were those that thought they could empty the bar in one flight, and they did their best to make sure that that happened. And uh, they wondered why they got blacklisted, because, uh, hey, the guy's a drunk. Don't let him up in first. He'll go hog wild when they start serving booze. And, oh, yeah, the stories you could tell about people that fly what they called us contingent passengers, who a short form was, was cons. And uh, some people, they had to prove, like in true Canadian fashion, they could drink everybody in the world under the bar. And oh they made idiots of themselves, so as a result, they got around. This guy's a drunk. Don't let him on. And uh didn't happen often, but it took about one or two shots like that, and they had a big vacation planned in Europe or out here skiing or something. Well, then uh, yeah. the reputation followed them. How long have you, how long have you been uh, retired? Uh, July the 17th at 7.16 p.m. It's not embossed on my head, but I remember it to the minute. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm perfecting it. My, my st- 
strongest exercise in the morning is wake up and look at the clock and give it the five-finger salute off the end of my nose and look at a picture of Stephen Harper and, th- and thank God that he's part of our history and uh, not a lot else. But uh, two weeks to go to retirement or something like that, two weeks, two months, whatever it was, uh, him and his people came up with the re- profound remark that if we hadn't worked we would have to work until, in my case, age 67 to get full pension. And, of course, my friends that I was working with, they got on my case about that. And I said, uh, I bit my Irish heritage tongue, and I said, Mr. Harper can, uh, and his administration could go do something physically impossible for even him. And uh, I'll be retiring after 47 years. I've earned it. I doubt if he's ever worked an honest stage in his life. So, uh, you know, he can go fly his kite or words to that effect. <laughs> and you, you I'm think, quite you, enjoying you think, it. You think- yeah, yeah uh, Doug, you think there's a different uh, a different style? Like, you think the folks that are working today have a different attitude than you and your crew did back in the day uh, in terms of job, uh, uh, you know, job appreciation? Uh, you know, it just, I just don't, I don't, you know, I've been traveling for a long time. I'm probably close, close to your age, maybe a little older even. I'll be 76 um, in the summer. Oh no, you got me. You got me by a bunch, uh, but close enough. Uh, but things have changed. Like just the attitude of people uh, when you get to the counter, when you get to the folks that are, you know, working in the air in an airport, the guys working in the the guys and gals working in the in the you know in the in the luggage areas and so on. People just seem to be more miserable today. Is it my imagination, or is that just what you see as well? That's pretty close to accurate. I um, I know that when uh, we went there. The day I got hired, I told the guy, like I went down to Air Canada, I was out of work, and I went down, I thought, well, what do you want to do the rest of your life? So I trotted myself down to Air Canada office on Bay and uh, Bloor and walked in and filled in an application, and they had on there, what do you like to do? And I put down photography, hiking, fishing, riding snowmobiles, riding motorcycles, and all that. The chap that interviewed me said, you overhauled motorcycles? I said, no, I, I, I tuned them so I could see if I'd get 100 miles an hour out of them, back when 100 <laughs> meant something. And he said, uh, I have a snowmobile. It's not, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. So I proceeded to tell him what to do and what not to do. I said, go up to Canadian Target, a spark plug wrench. It sounds like you got yourself a foul spark plug and you need to adjust the air screw. It's not tough, but I told him how to do it. He hired me. I almost fell off the uh, the chair. <laughs> I had run track, so I... I was in pretty good shape. They sent me down to CM. We were part of CN at the time, apparently. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I got my, uh, I passed my physical okay, and they said, April the 1st, 40 years to the day before my father passed away, I got hired. Well, Doug, you're uh, you're an excellent uh, an excellent guest, and I really appreciate you being a listener as well. And uh, please stay tuned and uh, come and join us again some other time. We're talking okay, to Doug neighbor, from... I'm building a piece of furniture here, and I'm and enjoying. People talk about stress. I grew up in a small town up north of Toronto, yeah. and I knew what stress was. I never fit in with the crowd up there, so as a result, you're a walking target. It yeah. motivated me powerfully to want to get out of that town fast. I went down to Toronto. I played baseball and softball in the three or four leagues. Found people that thought that I was a pretty good, okay person. Didn't have a catalog on all my faults and defects. Amazing. And I discovered you go to a place with the right attitude and let people know you're there. You want to be friends. You'll find friends everywhere. 
Thanks so much, Doug. Really appreciate you being on with us here today. And uh, I wish you all the best and enjoy your summer for sure. You know, carry on. We're going to get to, we have a few minutes here to talk about carry on luggage. It's changed my life. So what I, what I've had to do though, is I've had to adjust my, my clothing choices. So, so we, we, my wife and I have a deal. We wear one pair of shoes have enough room in the bag for a pair of flip flop flip flops and maybe a second pair of running shoes, maybe so maximum. But you know, three pairs of pants, you know, four tops, you know, five pairs of underwear, like all of. I, I got it laid out so it works perfectly. I bought some luggage that really works well. That packages smart. You know, it's a smart packaging, a smart intelligent uh, intelligent uh, system. Uh, has special, you know, compressor. You know, things to compress the clothing so it stays tight and so on. Like, there's ways to do this, but there's nothing better. I got to tell you, man, there's nothing better than rolling on the plane and rolling off the plane and not having to wait for your stuff. Not having to sit. I mean, how many people have sat in, in in their hotel room or in a resort or at mom and dad's place or at the wedding they just showed up for wearing the same clothes for four days or going to the store to buy what they need because their clothes are floating around somewhere else? And my anxiety goes through the roof when I don't have some level of control over what the future looks like for me when I'm doing stuff. So I find that if I can carry everything with me and I can adjust the clothes that I'm wearing. So if we go to enough different places over a, uh, let's say, a seven to 10 day. So we're going on a 10-day holiday. I'm packing enough clothes that I can wear something different uh, for four days and then rotate it again and wear it for another four days or so. And that gives me enough clothes to wear for, you know, basically 10 days. But got to wash some underwear in the sink or give it to the laundry in the hotel. I don't do that so much anymore either because I've had all kinds of stuff lost, right? So you're waiting for your underwear and your socks to come back and they don't because they got lost and they say, oh, I'll just go out and get some new ones. Well, you know, underwear and socks aren't so easy for me to get. Uh, I wear, you know, I'm very fussy as to what I like to wear. So yeah, all in all, this carry on luggage thing, I'm telling you, man, don't, don't play it down. Like it's worth looking at, even though you say, I can't do that. Yeah, you can if you really want to. It's just a function of making sure that you're on top of it and that you're, you're packing stuff you really need as opposed to extra things you think you just want. And by the way, when you're traveling, you're bound to buy a T-shirt or something or a hat or whatever while you're out and about anyway, right? So lots of choices. I think having stuff in your hands on the plane, off the plane makes it uh, makes it work. Getting to the airline early, getting to the, to the gates early, getting to the airport early, also something that really will make your life a lot easier uh, moving forward. And uh, I just wish that you'll have an exciting time. Hopefully we'll see each other in some airports this summer as we're running around. If you see me, come over and say hi. I'd love to say hello to you too. But the summer is here. And what that means is the whole maintenance scammers and spammers, they're out trying to sell you all kinds of stuff from siding to new roofs to you know blacktop driveways to sealing your basement, all kinds of cool stuff but you probably don't need it. And chances are they're probably not going to really build it for you anyway.
For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.